Today's sermon text is Romans chapter 11, verse 33, through chapter 12, verse 5. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. This is God's word. Thank you, David. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to be together on this Easter morning. We thank you that uh, we have air in our lungs. Our hearts are beating. We thank you that the sensations that we have remind us that we have life. And we acknowledge that you are the giver of life. We thank you that you created all things. All this did not come from nothing, but it came from you. And we thank you that you stepped into human history because the almighty creator desired to be known and you revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life, his death, and his glorious resurrection. We contemplate what happened 2,000 years ago. And we are reminded by Jesus' resurrection that he is the first fruits and that one day all those who follow you will be resurrected and live in a new created world with one another in the glow of your glory. We thank you for today. I pray for every heart, every heart that may doubt, every heart that may be heavy with pain, every heart that may be crusty with cynicism. Jesus, save us. Let the power of the resurrection shine through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, I get to do this again. Second Easter service. Man, I should like be more Jesus-like you know, by now. So we'll see. We'll see how the sermon goes. Um, it is truly a joy to be able to preach to you this Easter Sunday morning. This isn't just a holiday. This isn't just a day in the calendar. This is the day in which we mark the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the main reasons why he was resurrected from the dead was because there was probably some doubters and there were probably some folks who were saying, hey, was he legit? And when God raised Jesus from the dead, that was God's way of saying he was legit. You can take everything that he said to the bank. 
everything that he is. And if you put your faith and trust in him, not just a story, not just an ancient hero, but if you put your faith and trust in a living, resurrected Jesus, then one day when he returns, you also will be resurrected. But until that time, the power of the resurrection will begin to slowly infest your life. And you will become a new person. You will live like a new person, think like a new person, behave like a new person, function like a new person who is on a healing path because Jesus is good. Jesus is good. Um, Last week, if you were here, uh, you heard Robert, uh, our family pastor, give a a, a great message on the uh, Romans chapter 11, uh, the first part of what David McNair read today. And then he, but he first took us through the first 11 chapters, a quick review, sort of a quick review. It's hard to review 11 chapters of any book, but especially the book of Romans. And so I'm going to, I'm going to try to do that for a couple of minutes. And so this is for those of you theological people in here, please give me some grace. I'm going to be skimming over just a couple of things. Um, so beginning in Romans one through three, we have Paul sharing with us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, His assessment, God's assessment of humanity, of human civilization. We are broken. We are rebellious. Our hearts are far from the creator. And we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. And we can only be rescued through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Very simply, that Jesus is king over the whole universe. And he commands us to follow him. He calls us to follow him. He demands lordship over every aspect of our lives, over every compartment of our lives. There's nothing in our lives that is off limits to Jesus because he's king. Why does he have the right to do that? Because he's God. He designed this whole created order the way he wanted it to be. And we rebelled. And he is beginning to heal us through his power. But then Paul takes us another step. And as you get to Romans 3, 4, 5, and 6, you begin to see that Paul says something that's very unsettling. There's nothing that we can humanly do to heal ourselves, our brokenness, our sin. There's nothing we can do. You can memorize the Bible. You can pray until the cows come home. You can help elderly women across the street every day for the next 10,000 years, and you are still going to be a broken, impaired, sinning person. That's what we are. That's God's assessment. And as the creator, he has the right to tell us what he thinks about us. You can argue with it, but it's still true. You may not like gravity, but gravity will still kill you if you jump from a high place. It's true, we have to deal with it. I don't say that without any heart or empathy. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. But it's still true. It's still the case. And so he begins to lead us through some teaching on what it looks like to experience real transformation and healing or repentance in our lives. And he talks in Romans chapter 6 about how we should be baptized in Christ. And that baptism is the mark, the first act of obedience that every Christian embarks on. We are baptized literally into the water and we are raised as new people. In the ancient church, they didn't have altar calls. 
They said, if you believe, who wants to be baptized? And that's the way they did it back then. Baptism was where you started. You have faith. You're born again in your heart. You're converted by that faith, by the Holy Spirit, through your faith. And then you are baptized. And that baptism also symbolizes that we become new people in Jesus. But then you get to Romans chapter 7, and Paul begins to deal with the conundrum. There are those of us who are born again, who are saved, and yet we still behave in ways that we despise. What's up with that? How is it true that the same power that, that, dwelt in, that raised Christ from the dead dwells in me? Words that we sang just a few minutes ago. How can that possibly be true? How can I be born again and still sin at times? And that's when Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. For those of us who are in Christ, who stumble and blunder through this life, there is no condemnation for us because Jesus bore our punishment for us. So every sin we've ever committed, the sin that's in our life right now, and the sin that we will commit down the road, Jesus' blood has cleansed us from that sin. But the book of Romans doesn't end there like so many preachers in America do. The book of Romans doesn't say, you've got grace, you and God are good, have faith. He says this, the Spirit of God is in you if you are legitimately a follower of Jesus. And the Spirit of God gives you the ability to mortify, as some older translations say, or kill sin. Beginning next week, we're going to do a series for the rest of this semester on how to kill sin and put on Jesus for the rest of this semester. I hope you'll keep coming. Um, Yeah. That's a whole ball of wax there. But anyway, so he, he reminds us that there is therefore now no condemnation. And then he reminds us that just because we're in grace doesn't mean we don't try. We don't try to make God loves us, love us. God already loves us. We don't try to save ourselves and become acceptable to God. That happened through Jesus when we put our faith in him. But here's what we do try at. We look at our lives and see the brokenness in our lives and we do something that every writer of scripture and every good preacher who's ever lived has said, repent. And repent means to change your mind leading to a change of behavior. And that's a lifelong process. It happens for the rest of our lives. If you're a Christian, you are repenting every day, every single day. There's not a day that goes by that you shouldn't be repenting. We should be repenting every day. And then... He leads us through this interesting part of Romans chapter 8 when he explains the brokenness of the world and how God is going to redeem and renew the creation. And he talks about how another, there and in other places how we, God's, Jesus' followers, one day when Jesus returns, he, we will be resurrected from the dead, given new bodies, and we will live in a restored world with real bodies that can touch and handle things and walk and talk and run and play. We will live in a restored world that has no temptation, no sin, but will be ignited by the glory of Jesus' face. We will live in that world. And then because he's talking to a congregation in Rome made up of Jews and Gentiles, they have some tension with one another, he begins to spend three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, on what it looks like 
for the future of the Jews. And he explains that right now there's a gospel outpouring all over the earth in which the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, will be brought into the fold. And then he says there's going to be a time in history at some point in the future where the Spirit will be poured out and God's chosen people, the Jews, will be restored. They will be drawn to repentance and the church will be, will be whole. Jews and Gentiles worshiping and following Jesus. It's going to be absolutely gorgeous. Gorgeous. And this is what leads him in Romans chapter 11 to say these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. You can see Paul, at least I can in my mind's eye, pushing back from the desk that he may be writing from or dictating to. And and just see him putting his hands in his head and saying, my goodness, this is incredible. And then he keeps on writing. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. No one. Who has been God's counselor? Who instructs God on how to run the universe? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Whoa. Everything that exists is from God. It can only experience real life through God. And the existence of everything can only have real meaning when it's for God, to God. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. For from Him and through Him And to him are all things. And so please, my friends, don't see this as an enigmatic, strange, otherworldly, passionate type of preacher. See this as a man who is just like us, who is grabbed by God. And who is also beseeching us and entreating us to turn our hearts to this same Lord who rules all of creation. Because every molecule that exists is from God, is through God, and is to God. There is not an atom that exists that has meaning outside of Yahweh. And this is why in Romans 12... In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I entreat you. I beg you. Please listen to me. Don't compartmentalize what I'm saying is something that a preacher or a theologian should say. Please see this. If Jesus is a real man... If Jesus was raised from the dead 
And if what this text is saying is true, that everything that has ever existed has existed from God, through God, and to God, then you can't blow this off as just some some passionate preacher. This is being planted in the middle of your backyard. And so he's entreating them, please, please hear this. I want to talk about the way he's entreating them. Because if you go back to the Romans chapter 1 and a few comments that I made a moment ago, Jesus is demanding our repentance. He's Lord. He's King. He's not asking like, hey, would you consider? You know, just think about it. No pressure. He's pronouncing over the world his reign. This is what kings do. This is my realm. Every space that exists is my realm. And I want things to go my way. I know what's best. Who has known the mind of God? And sometimes when we hear stuff like that, it sort of rings, it reminds us of more of like an erratic, unreasonable, unentreatable father who is always aroused to irritability and anger with the slightest misstep. And so we're always sort of scanning, making sure that we don't get daddy angry. And so it's hard these days to talk about a loving heavenly father whom we can find grace and mercy and peace in his arms. It's hard to talk about that these days because a lot of people don't have that dad. A lot of people don't. And so I want to remind you that God is good And when Paul is saying here that I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, he's simply saying this. God wants to be with you. God loves you. The call to repentance isn't a call to be dominated. Yes, it's a call to be ruled. It's a call to have a Lord. But it is a call into tenderness and gentleness and peace and love and faithfulness and truth. It's a call into that. So some of us are scrambled by goofy churchiness. Some of us, our minds are scrambled by the religiosity of our world. Some of us, our minds are scrambled by a a really broken home life. I want to tell you that there is the kind of father out there who really loves us and celebrates us and wants to be with us. This is where the gospel really hits me and hits me really hard. Um, For the longest time in my life, I didn't feel like I was loved. I didn't feel like people desired my presence. I became aware of this for the first time when I was in fourth grade. I was in Miss Norman's class. And I had this friend who, who I called my best friend at the time. And his name is Mark. And I remember overhearing Mark on several occasions with other guys talking about things that they had talked about on the phone the night before. And I remember thinking to myself, this is like the first time I ever remember feeling this awareness. I remember thinking, why didn't Mark ever call me? Why don't any of these guys that I hang out with in the playground and play basketball, why don't they ever want to hang out with me? And that thought became a specter in my heart for years and years. For the longest time, I felt unloved. I felt 
that I had to be something that I wasn't. I couldn't be authentic to myself because when I was my authentic self, people didn't like what they saw. So I got into performing and creating an image, sort of a, uh, somebody's honking out there, somebody's angry, a, a, a poser of, of who I wanted people to love. And I lost myself. And for years and years and years, I was able to maintain that image. But after a while, it began to break down because I became two people. And at the end of the day, I just had to come to terms with the fact that I was really, really lonely. And I was afraid for people to really know me because if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. And so when the gospel began to connect with my life, that was one of the first things that really hit me hard was that the creator of the universe loved me, but he also liked me. The creator of the universe knew everything that was wrong with me and still cherished my presence. He still wanted me to be with him and be around him. I just felt led by the Holy Spirit to tell you that today. Uh, I had prepared all week for this message and I got to yesterday and then that anecdote just was seared into me. And I don't know who needs that. I don't know who needs to hear that. But I want you to know that Jesus really, really, really loves you. And he wants to be with you. He knows that you're an addict. He knows that you've got secret secrets and shameful tendencies. And he loves you. And he wants you to come to him with all of your shame and all of your brokenness because he wants to be with you. And here's what's really cool about Jesus. That if you surrender to his lordship, he will heal you. He will make you new. And this is why, one reason at least, why Paul is so passionately entreating these people. I beseech you by the mercies of God by the mercies of God, to basically be with Jesus. Be with him. But here's the thing. We are broken. And the only way we can be with him is because of his mercy. We can only be with him because of his mercy. We can't be with him for what we've done, what we can do, as I mentioned earlier. There's nothing that will cause God to give his mercy to us. He gives it to us. He gives his grace to us. He came down to us to meet us where we are. But in order to meet us where we are, something had to happen. He took on the form of human flesh. He became a man. And he lived in this broken world with the same problems that we face under the same demonic powers. And Jesus died for our sins. He bore our punishment so that we could be near him. He did that for us. Something like that, that had to happen in order for us to have God's mercy. I would even say, that the act of Jesus giving himself in crucifixion is God giving us mercy. It's a, the gift of mercy. And so let's be careful here to remember that God, even though he's gentle, even though he's loving, even though he is full of grace and love, 
He's not a teddy bear. That's not who God is. God is holy. God is holy. And something had to happen for us to be healed, for us to be restored. And his son took that upon himself. He says, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I want to make something clear here. When he says, I appeal to you to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, he's not saying make yourself acceptable so that God will love you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. He's talking to Christians, remember, here in Romans. He's saying, you people who already love Jesus, you are the beneficiaries of unfathomable grace. Unfathomable grace. Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, he said, you are, have received lavish grace. Lavish grace. It is only appropriate since you have received grace to respond in worship. It is appropriate that a follower of Jesus responds to salvation and says, okay, my life is yours. You won me. You fought for me. My kids know that when they bring home a report card, there are grades that are acceptable and there are grades that are unacceptable. And that's determined based on me and their mom's understanding of their level of ability. That's how we gauge that. We're not an all-A family. But we do demand that our kids put in the study and the discipline necessary and that they perform to the level we feel that they can achieve. And we hold them accountable to that. If my kids bring home straight Fs, we're going to be really unhappy. Things, bad things will happen at the house. (laughs) Xboxes will cease to exist. Phones will vanish into thin air. Things like that will happen. Um, Terrible things. Uh, Awful, terrible things. TVs will go away. Um, But what will still be there in lavish amounts is our love. We will never stop loving them and pouring love on them. We will continue to shape their lives and push them towards virtue and towards Jesus and towards good habits and disciplines and a lifestyle that's really good so that when they get married one day, they won't get a divorce a few, a few days later. We want to make sure that happens in their lives. But regardless of the fact that my kids act acceptably or unacceptably, we love them. Paul is not saying here that God will stop loving you or start loving you based on your behavior. What he's saying is this. You belong to God. And because you belong to God, it is acceptable and reasonable and logical to say, Hey, God has, God has gets to tell me what to do with my life. He's my Lord. And there are certain ways that I think and that I behave that are appropriate for a person who has come to Jesus. This is what he means when he says that we should behave acceptably. But he uses an an example here. He draws on the Old Testament some imagery, and he appeals to us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. He says, present, like present, something you give, and our bodies. And in the ancient mind, our body represented everything we are. 
Everything. Emotions, mind, spirit, will, everything. Present to God your body. He says, do that. As a living sacrifice. Now, this is a little bit squirrely here too because a living sacrifice, I thought Jesus was our sacrifice. The book of Hebrews says he's our one and only sacrifice. So why do we need to be a sacrifice? Does he mean that we need to do things in order to be saved? No, he's not saying that. He spent 11 chapters saying, no, 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 no. The just will live by faith in Jesus. But here's what he is saying, I think. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 1. Arguably, the most important sacrifice that was made in the Old Testament was the burnt offering described at the beginning of Leviticus. This is because it abated God's wrath. And when these burnt offerings were made, uh, different people would come to the priests and they would bring an animal to present to that priest. Now remember, this was an agrarian culture thousands of years ago. They didn't have paper currency and coin. They did business with livestock and what they grew in their fields. That was their economy. They were also living in the wilderness at that time. They weren't in the promised land when this was written. And so there wasn't a lot of places to graze your sheep. Food, meat, the meat kind of food, the God kind of food, the food that walks around, you know, the good food that everybody should eat, especially vegetarians. That kind of food was scarce in those days. If it didn't walk, you, if it does walk, you should eat it. So um, if food was scarce in those days. I don't know why I'm doing this. Uh, food was scarce in those days. And so when they brought an animal before God to be sacrificed, it was literally, in more senses than one, a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice. And the people who were well-to-do back then, they were, they were told to bring a bull before God, an expensive animal, high value. But there was also a sort of a middle class, people who weren't as well-off as those who, who had a bull amongst their livestock, and so they could bring a sheep or a goat. And then there were those who were the poor. And they were allowed to bring a turtle dove or a pigeon. Now, even though those are different, those have different values in their economy, in God's eyes, they all weighed the same. They brought what they could to God. And every gift was a sacrifice. And here's what they would do when they would make the sacrifice. They would lead this animal before God, before the priests. They would take their hand put it on the animal's head, confess their sins, and it would be as though, in God's eyes, their guilt was transferred to that animal. And then they would probably sing some sort of a song, and then that animal would be killed and his carcass burned. And that burning would be a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of God, as though. But it also represented something else. That animal represented something that they owned. It belonged to them. And by giving that animal to the priest, they were saying, I resign all rights over this animal. It is no longer mine. It belongs to God. It belongs to you. Do with it, God, what you will. Anything you want. 
This is what I think Paul meant when he said we are a living sacrifice and we should present our bodies to God. We, we have already been atoned for our sins. They were imputed to Jesus and he died for our sins and his righteousness was imputed or given to us, put on our account. So it's as though in God's eyes we have never sinned. But we are still called in response to the gospel to give our life as a present to God. Do with me what you desire. Whatever you want, my life is yours. You have full control and lordship over everything. You've got control over my marriage, my sex life, the way I raise my kids, the stuff that I watch on TV, how I spend my money, who I vote for. You have authority over every part of my life, everything. I no longer have a right to harbor bitterness and resentment because Jesus said that when you're living under my rule, you've got to forgive if you want to be forgiven. Unforgiving people probably haven't been forgiven and understand the grace of God. Jesus has authority over every part of us. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Not literally, but be serious about dealing with sin in your life. If somebody offends you, if somebody hurts you, turn the other cheek and offer them that cheek. Be willing to suffer insult. It's not your job to return vengeance for vengeance. You let me do that. You love your neighbor. Love your enemies. Pray for them. This is the, the, this is the lordship that Jesus exercises over our lives. But the problem is, is that so many of us have been raised in churches that dumb all that down and core all that out that we have a million excuses why we don't have to turn the other cheek. We got a million excuses why we can still raise our hands and shout and get happy at church and still be really mean and ugly to people at work. And advise people to return evil for evil when they act that way as well. We celebrate unrighteousness. We endorse it. And Jesus says, man, you belong to me. You are from me, through me, and to me. I know what's best for your life, not you. I know what's best in your marriage, not you. I know what's best in the country you live in, not you. I know what's best for your kids, not you. I know what's best for your sex life, not you. And then as we begin to dig into these issues, we begin to realize, whoo, there are things about my life that I don't want Jesus to touch because I don't believe Jesus really is good. Because if he begins to tinker with parts of my life that are really precious to me, parts that only I can mess with, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose happiness and lose joy and my life won't be as good anymore. And this is where American Christians, Jesus is sticking himself in your business. This is where he wants to meet you. Will you trust me with your most precious things? Because I am good. I love you. I know what's best for you, and I want to heal you. I want to heal you. Whew, that's hard to hear, man. That's hard to say. I don't say that without feeling it. Man, I feel like every day God's got his hand out asking for something precious to me, and I'm like, oh, 
God, don't believe. I can trust you with this, Jesus. That's my reaction. But every single time in my life, I finally, by the power of the Spirit and great death to self, have handed over that precious thing to God. I've seen he's good. He's good. He's really good. He's really good. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Those aren't three levels of God's will, in case you've been taught that. It's that God's will is good. It is acceptable. It's perfect. God's will for your marriage is good. It's acceptable. It's perfect. God's will for your addiction is good, acceptable, and perfect. God's will for your kids, your education, your past is good, acceptable, and perfect. You may not be able to know the mind of God in that area yet, but God is good, acceptable, and perfect. And if you make deep roots in God, you will see that. Next Easter, you won't be here a little bit more cynical, but you'll have a little more joy, a little more faith. Having looked back and seen a little more growth in your life because you trusted God that even though, man, life is squirrely and there are things you don't understand, God's ways, God's will is good, acceptable, perfect. It really is. But he says, don't be conformed to this world. Why does Jesus have a right to tell us that? Because we're living in his space. We're living in his space. Some people have a hard time with the demand of Jesus over our lives today. We live in a world where people say, hey, your truth's your truth, my truth's my truth. I don't even know what that means. But people say that a lot. And the problem is, is that we don't have that view when it comes down to the way we live our lives. That's real nice to say that on Facebook or something when you're bantering with someone. But when you're real life, when you're hosting community group and such and such family comes and their kids tear your house down, you start getting mad and you start going, hey, I got, I got demands and expectations for my house. My kids' toys are getting stolen. Stole. My kids' toys are getting stole. Uh, th- things are getting torn up at my house. Um, I'm stepping on Legos in the bathroom. I and mean, Things are crazy in my house. I, I expect people to honor my space. We all have that expectation. The reason why husbands and wives, we get in fights with each other is because we expect our wife to read our minds. I mean, honor our space so that we can coexist happily together. We have a demand that whoever we do life with, whoever we bump up against, respects our space. Is it wrong that God has that same expectation? And guess where God's space is? Everywhere. The writer of Psalms said you could even go down to the gray Sheol and find God there. There's nowhere you can go and not find God. It is God's space. So you and I, we live in God's space. Would you say that? I live in God's space. That means God's my king. Say that too. That means God's my king. Or maybe, maybe this will make more sense. Say God's my president. 
And that's, I'm sure, leading to many, many diverse thoughts in this church right now. So, um, so we're being conformed, and we've got to recognize that. This world's changing us, slowly changing us. This world is like being connected to an IV. The way that media is becoming more and more perverse... And please understand, I'm, if you've never heard me preach before, I don't think I'm some crazy fundamentalist preacher. But, I mean, media is becoming more and more perverse and exotic in its offerings. Music, television, movies. I'm watching a movie trailer the other day. I had to turn off because it was so sexually perverse. A movie trailer. I mean, our world is like, it's like an, we're being connected to an IV and our values and our convictions are slowly, 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 just like an antibiotic, biotic dripping into our bloodstream is slowly changing us, slowly changing us. Do you recognize that? Do you see that? Because it is. And I'm not here to tell you what's right or wrong with your life as much as I am to say, do you recognize that the reason that you have breath in your lungs is because you came from God. Your only reason for existence is through God. And the whole reason you have life in the first place is, for, is to God, for His glory. And here's what's crazy. Here's what's amazing, I should say. The sweetest part of life is when you realize, I live for His glory. God's not an egomaniac. God's not insecure. God's not full of pride. God is perfect. And he knows if you hang out with me enough, your life is going to be healed. And he just flat out wants to be with you because he likes you. He likes you. Thanks, Sherry. <laughs> Verse 3 through 5. We'll wrap this thing up. That's traditional Easter message. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he's saying, now check this out. We've gotten through 11 chapters of Romans of the most sophisticated theology on the gospel and salvation ever recorded. And now he's getting to the application. Here's what you do with it. And what's the first thing that he says to do? Be humble. Don't think highly of yourself. Now, what do I do with that? And this is what he chases it with. Verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Wait a second. You mean to tell me that Paul has written 11 chapters of some of the grandest, most sophisticated theology on salvation ever recorded, and one of the first applications he comes up with is this. Be humble and remember, you need to be connected to other people in the church. In other words, do church right. Don't just show up on Easter and on Christmas. Do church right. What? That's his application? That's the first thing he wants us to do, is to humble ourselves and not think that we've got a little bit of a leg up on some people, and we don't need to be rooted in the church as much as other people do. No, he says, 
We need to be rooted deeply in the body of Jesus if we're going to flesh all this stuff out that I've written. Why? Yesterday I was watching one of my favorite shows, Pioneer Woman. You know what Pioneer Woman is? Hmm? Yeah, Jeremy just said, that's a strong play. I just pulled it out. Yeah. Um, we DVR Pioneer Woman. I've missed some of them. But I've watched those little kids grow up on that farm in Oklahoma. And yesterday, she made this Asian soup. Man, it was good. It was so good. I didn't eat it, but it was so good. She took out a ramen noodle pack. Beef. She took the ramen noodle brick, put it in a bowl, took the beef seasoning, ripped it open, poured it on. I was like, I can do this. I can do this. See, I can cook a little bit. And, and then she took kale. She started pinching off pieces of kale, tossing it in there. And she kept saying, oh, this is so good. I love this. It's one of my favorite dishes. And her husband always has like one line. One line. He says every single show. This is really good, honey. And, and, um, and so she's pinching off the kale. And then she takes ginger and uh, some ground ginger, grated ginger. I'm thinking coffee, sorry. And um, I've got eight colors in my crayon box, so sorry. Um, then she takes, then she takes um, what does she take next? She took some garlic, I think, um, fish sauce. She put some fish sauce in just a little bit, she said. She said, you don't want to overwhelm the dish. Made a note of that. She said, uh, then she took some, um, some hot sauce and put it in. Sriracha sauce, is that what it is? Okay. I can't spell that, but sriracha sauce. So she put it in. And a couple more things. Forgetting, what was it? What? Lime. She did, she did some um, um, lime zest. Thank you. It's when you take a, like a cheese grater or something and you do the lime skin or whatever you call it. And what? Yeah, yeah. And it went in. And then she squeezed the lime. And then she had hot water boiling and she just poured it in. No, I forgot the main ingredient. Oh my gosh. She had a piece of sirloin that big. And here's what she did. This is really smart. She put it in the freezer for like 15 or 20 minutes. And she got a really sharp knife. She pulled it out. And then she started slicing it with that really sharp. Because it was, it was frozen... It made it uh, easier. It, was, it looked like Texas brisket, the way she was cut. It was just beautiful. Anybody hungry yet? Man. And i got to preach another one of these. So you, you can deal with it. Um, so, um, and so she started cutting the meat, and she, and she took little slices of, of sirloin and dropped it in. That was actually on top of the, the brick of, of noodles. And then she finally took boiling water. And she poured the boiling water in just to the top of all the ingredients that were in the bowl. And that's it. Let's pray. I'm kidding. Uh, and, so, and so she poured it up to the top of the ingredients and she let it simmer. And I'm watching her eat this and I'm like, man, I want that food. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking to myself how the body of Jesus is supposed to work. Because for a lot of us, it's a dip. And this isn't like something I'm preaching just because it's Easter. And I'm assuming that a lot of you won't be back until Christmas. I don't believe that. 
Um, I began to think to myself, the way I think church is supposed to work, at least in my mind's eye when I read scripture, is if you took one ingredient, I don't know what it is, and you threw it in that boiling water that was simmering, eventually whatever that ingredient is that you threw in would take on the consistency, the smell, and the taste of that soup. And for a lot of us, we're ingredients that are sitting outside of the bowl, and our brothers and sisters in Jesus are in the bowl simmering in this soup. And we're taking on the virtues of one another. We're taking on hope and faith and love. I'm part of a small group of guys that's learning how to discipline ourselves in terms of eating right. And, man, by far, I'm the weakest one in the group. And just the last couple of weeks, watching those guys, the way that they, with discipline, monitor their eating and intake calories, it's really challenged me and encouraged me. It's because I'm with people. We're simmering together. And for a lot of people, we never give ourselves the chance to, the chance to simmer in the same bowl. And so we have this cynicism that grows inside of us. And we wonder, why is it that this Jesus thing doesn't work? Why is it that I have the power of the resurrection in me and nothing ever happens? It's because we're not doing what the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, prescribed to us. You've got this great gospel. Now root yourself in the soup of the church. Be in it. Swim in it. Really participate in it. Learn how to endure with people who don't think like you. Learn that. Man, we Americans, woo, we are allergic to being in the same room with people who don't think like us. I'm not saying you've got to agree. I'm not saying you've got to like it. But if we're a church that's reaching lots of different people, we're going we're gonna to clash at times. Does our love, is our love stronger than our views? And I'm challenging every one of us here. We're not doing an altar call today. We're not doing an invitation. Here's my invitation. Plunge into the church of Jesus. Next week, we're starting a new series called Putting on Christ. We're going to teach about how to grow in Jesus. We're going to teach on that for the rest of the semester. I hope you'll join us. In the meantime, you're a living sacrifice. Jump in the soup. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. We need you. We love you. We honor you. And we pray in Jesus' name that each of us would experience the power of your grace.